Good morning. Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday. I am not in space. I did not decide to do that today. Then again, I don't have $200 billion to throw away and, you know, go for an airplane ride. It's silly, but whatever. Do what you do, Bezos. I hope you're having a good day. Got a lot of stuff to get to. A lot of baseball today. The Major League Trade deadline is coming up. We're going to talk a lot about that and who could be dealt and what teams could be the ones to watch. It's always an interesting time of the year to me. I, I enjoy the prospect of teams selling or buying and the decisions that have to be made with that. We're going to talk about the NBA Finals. Game six coming up. The Bucks on the verge of their first title since some guy, Luel Cinder was in town, and that means that was a pretty long time ago. But we want to start with what's going to happen in Buffalo over the next week, and I'm not talking about the Bills. I'm talking about the Toronto Blue Jays, or they've been the Buffalo Blue Jays this summer. The Jays have announced that the Canadian government has given them an exemption to go back to Toronto to play the remainder of their season in the Sky Dome, which, you know, you think about it, it, it makes sense. They're going back home. They have a Major League ballpark at their disposal. They're going to use it. They have been playing for the last two months, in June and July, in Buffalo, after playing the first two months in Dunedin, Florida. You know, the Florida attendance was limited somewhat by COVID regulations, and There was about 1,500 to 2,000 people per game down there. In Buffalo, early on, there were very limited seating, and recently, obviously, it's opened back up. And the crowds have been pretty good. Last night, as a matter of fact, the crowd in Buffalo was the biggest they've had so far, 12,811. Unfortunately for the Blue Jays, they they got pounded by the Red Sox 14-3. to And they not only got pounded on the field, They got pounded off the field, essentially, too, because last night it was Fenway West, I guess you'd go with. It was Red Sox Nation traveling to Buffalo. And, you know, this is going to happen. If you think about it, we here in Rochester, we're an hour away. We don't have an opportunity to drive an hour and see a Major League Baseball game very often. And because there's no true local team, There's a ton of Yankee fans, obviously, a ton of Red Sox fans, some Met fans like myself, even Joe's Pirates. They're fans of that organization for some reason. But we all want an opportunity to go see our team while they're in Buffalo. And so last night, and it's going to happen tonight, and it's going to happen tomorrow night as well, there are going to be big crowds in Buffalo for these games, and it's going to be very much a pro-Red Sox crowd. I think that's a big part of the reason why the Blue Jays organization, and I'm not saying the players, the Blue Jays organization are very much looking forward to getting this team back to Toronto where they become a true home team. Now, the rest of the season, you're going to have another series with the Red Sox. There's a series with the Yankees at the end of September as well. Those are really the only series that I think this would be a factor. I think it looks bad for the home team playing in a home stadium 
when everybody's rooting for the visiting team. And I think that's the image that the Blue Jays organization was in such a rush to do without. And I think that plays into this. The weird thing is, I wonder what effect this is going to have on this team. Let's face it. This Blue Jays team is a very good and a very interesting young team. The pitching isn't young. You know, Hinjin Ryu's 31 years old. Steven Matz, who's younger but's been around for a while. They're not the youngest guys on the mound. However, you look at Vlad Jr. at 23 years old. Bo Bichette at 23. I'm sorry, Vlad's only 22. They're very young and, and very interesting players. And any baseball fan is going to enjoy watching Vlad Jr. hit. It, 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 you don't have to be a Blue Jay fan to want to go to the game and see him play. You need to be a baseball fan to do so. I really think the Jays organization is rushing this situation. Because I don't know what's going to happen going forward in Canada. Canada seems to have been far more restrictive in lifting regulations than the U.S. has. So I wonder if things start going south again, if you will, with, with the Delta variant of COVID, does this somehow need to be reversed? And can you walk this back? The Bisons, the AAA team of Buffalo, they're going to now start playing in Salem Stadium. If the Blue Jays have to go back to playing in Salem Stadium for some reason, what happens then? Is this 100% assured going to last the rest of the season this way? And you think about the players who have families. I'm not worried about the Bo Bichettes and Vlad Juniors of the world. They're young kids, 22, 23 years old. doesn't matter where they play. But Marcus Simeon, who's having a great year, 30 years old, he's got a family. Does he bring his family to Toronto where they possibly, if COVID acts up again, they can't get out at the end of the year? Is, is there pressure that way? And if you don't bring your family, is there pressure that way? Could these things end up having an on-the-field effect for this team? And maybe I'm just being selfish because I didn't yet get a chance to get up to a ball game in Buffalo and would love to. Maybe that's where this is coming from. But I think this is a very bad decision for the Blue Jays organization. You look at where they are right now. They're 48-43. and They're seven games out of first place. The Red Sox picked up a game on the Jays last night, obviously, by beating them. They're also only a game ahead of the Yankees at this point. So the AL East is going to be very competitive all the way down the wire. And and you look at the Jays with this young team, if players stop performing to the same level, then there's a chance that this season could go south. And again, with the trade deadline is the backdrop, This decision could affect the players, and and the wrong decision could be made again at the trade deadline because every team in baseball has a decision to make coming up. Do you you sell? Do you buy? 
or do you stand pat? The third part of that is very rare that a team will stand pat because there's opportunities, whether you are looking for this year or you're looking to the future, there's opportunities to better your organization. So standing pat really shouldn't be an option. There will be teams that do, but I really think anybody who's a Blue Jays fan is going to be very interested to see how this goes over the next couple weeks. Because after tomorrow, the players have to pack up midseason. This is, it's always a, a, a thing in spring training, at the end of spring training. When the players move north, get themselves settled. It takes a little while. And, and a lot of times with the travel of road trips, they don't have that time to get settled. But eventually they do, and then they go forward. Now, this is like leaving spring training and trying to get everything organized in the middle of the season. You know, you think of guys like Bichette and Vlad Jr. I'm sure they're probably just living in hotels in Buffalo, but is that what they're going to do in Toronto as well? What about the living arrangements? And that's fine if you're a 22 or 23-year-old single guy. But if you've got a family and you've got kids and you got to figure that out, there's a lot more to this decision than simply where the team is going to play. And I think this could be a situation that hurts this year's team's chances of making the playoffs. The other part of this is the city of Buffalo. How did it acquit itself as a host of a Major League Baseball team? And, and here's where I find it somewhat interesting from the city of Buffalo's standpoint, having a game like last night where it's all Red Sox fans there is to be expected when the other team is essentially a visiting team as well. So I don't know that you can look at that and say it's a bad host city for baseball because the only people that care are going to see the other team. If you look at some of the attendance numbers, Previously, when they played Seattle, their high crowd was 6,700. When they played Baltimore, they had 7,800. Again, this is in a roughly 13,000-seat arena that they're using. But against Tampa, the smallest crowd they had was 7,500. So I think people did go to the games, did go to see the Blue Jays play, and, and possibly there were some... Rays fans, Baltimore fans, Seattle fans. I use them because they're somewhat the smaller draws on the schedule. Last Friday night, when they played the Rangers in Buffalo, they drew 10,100. So you're you're looking at a pretty good turnout against the lesser teams. And, And again, going forward, the Oakland A's are likely to be relocated. It's been... 20 years of them trying to get a stadium. It's never going to happen in Oakland. They lost an NFL team over a stadium issue. The cities don't want to lose NFL teams. Baseball teams can come and go. But an NFL team, there's a lot of revenue to be gained there. When the Oakland A's move to Las Vegas, likely, the next team that moves somewhere is going to have to figure things out. And again, if we're getting into a situation where travel across borders is a problem... Buffalo could be a viable candidate to become a major league city. So did this experiment hurt the city of Buffalo in that regards or help 
the city of Buffalo. And, and to me, I look at the Bills and Sabres and the support of those teams to judge how the city of Buffalo and the surrounding areas would support a team. I really think that going forward, people would buy into this team if it were a Buffalo team. Say the Blue Jays move permanently to Buffalo. I think you'd have a ton of fandom created immediately for the new team in Buffalo, and people would support it similar to the way they support the Bills. And remember, the Bills are good now. They haven't been that good for very long, and the fans somehow supported them through thick and thin. The Sabres are the worst organization in the NHL, and yet fans still buy season tickets, and they still do quite well attendance-wise. And going forward, seemingly, you'd have people coming from across the border to see this team because they'd follow them. So while I don't think Buffalo ever gets its own Major League Baseball team, I do think the city has shown enough in other areas and with this team that they put themselves on the map that if another team besides the A's move, and I think we're going to see teams move. I mean, the Tampa Tampa Bay Rays are desperate for a stadium. They're not going to get one. What's going to happen there with Tampa? There was talk that possibly they might go to Montreal and play some games there. I think Buffalo has put themselves on the map as a potential Major League Baseball city, though I wouldn't expect it to happen anytime soon unless, again, COVID acts up again and we end up closing the borders again to travel. So something to keep an eye on there. Oh, and Red Sox fans, enjoy the next two nights because it looked like Fenway South if you saw any of the game last night from there. The trade deadline a couple weeks away. And, you know, it's going to be fun to see what teams do. Teams like the Blue Jays that are in the thick of it and the Yankees that are in the thick of it. But realistically, what's the best course for your franchise? And that, that to me, is the question that when the general managers and the scouts, they get together in the room probably this week and early next and make the decision of what we're going to do. Can we contend this year? Is there a move out there that can help us contend this year? Or... Are we looking to build our organization up to contend in the future? And there are a lot of teams that have already made that decision. (laughs) Teams that are going to dictate the trade deadline. The Cubs are the team to watch as we approach this trade deadline. They have been less than inspiring this year. I'll say it that way to be nice to any Cub fans who may be listening. They've got contracts that are expiring. They've got assets that can bring back a ton of talent. Start with Chris Bryant. He's at the end of his contract. It doesn't look as though the Cubs will be able to sign him, though I've read that they're going to try to re-up him and extend him before they make this decision. Similarly with Javi Baez. What the two of those players have that an inquiring team with love is flexibility. Bryant could play the outfield. He could play third base. He's played five positions so far this year. 
He's a very good hitter. He's had some ups and downs in his career, but more ups than downs. And I think any team that needs a right-handed bat and or a versatile player, third baseman, outfielder, I think Chris Bryant's a great addition. He'll cost a ton in draft cap or prospect capital. So we'll see where it goes from there. Javi Baez, similarly, can play shortstop, second base, third base, hit for power. He's an interesting player. He's a fun player to watch. I think that's the same thing. And then you look at possibly Anthony Rizzo, though the Cubs are a big market team. They're not going to trade everybody. they got to build around somebody. I think Rizzo is going to continue to be the face of that organization. But the guy who I think could bring back maybe the most in prospect capital is Craig Kimbrell. You look at what Kimbrell has done this year. He's been fantastic. He's got a .53 ERA. He's got 33 and two-thirds innings pitched. He's only given up 11 hits. He's given up 11 walks. So his whip is like .66, and he struck out 58 in those 33 innings. He's been amazing for the Cubs this year. And I got to think that the Boston Red Sox, who rode Kimbrell to a championship a few years back, have to be interested. They're, They're looking for depth in their bullpen. Why not get the hammer that could possibly bring you another World Series title? I really think Kimbrell is a piece that a lot of people will be looking at. The Yankees have a very tough decision. I've talked about this on this podcast before, where the Yankees aren't traditionally sellers, but when they did sell a few years back, it set them up for a pretty good run Going forward, I think this year is a similar situation. And I also think because of the uncertainty of what you're going to do going forward with certain players, it may be the best opportunity to move players. Aaron Judge is the name that's going to be brought up until the Yankees do one of two things. Either sign him or trade him. Because he is their best offensive player. He is a face of that team, you look in the stadium and you watch a game, there are more 99 jerseys by a lot than any other number. He is the guy the fans go to see, yet next year when he's 31 years old, are the Yankees going to be willing to pay him $30 million a year to keep him for 8 to 10 years? I, I think that's a bad business decision to anybody who does it. And it's nothing against the player. The player's a great young player, or great young as in, in terms of service, not young as in age. And I just, I don't know how the Yankees navigate that. So that's the biggest decision they have to make after they decide whether or not they're sellers or buyers. Frankly, they should be sellers. They they may sneak into the playoffs this year. I don't believe that there's going to be an opportunity for them to win this year. And maybe they figure figure things out with Aroldis Chapman. By the way, tweet of the year last night after Chapman struggles and Edwin Diaz blowing his third save of the third save in a row for the Mets. There was a tweet. Eight million people live in New York City. 
and they can't find one good closer. Very, very accurate tweet. The Mets, I have been rumored to be making a splash. They had a terrible weekend in Pittsburgh. Joe's Pirates kicked their butt. Mets got a little lucky and won the third game on Sunday. But they lose Francisco Lindor to the I.L., They lose Jacob DeGrom to the IL again, and DeGrom's issue, it seems strange to me over the break when they were saying DeGrom was going to pitch on Monday in Cincinnati, and I'm thinking, why are you pushing him back? What's going on? And sure enough, forearm tightness, another MRI, came back clean, but he is not healthy, and that's a situation that likely will keep him out for a couple weeks. Now, in the positive for the Mets, Carlos Carrasco, is likely to throw a rehab start coming up here, maybe get another one next week, and then probably join the Mets rotation. And that's a really good add towards the end of July. That's like adding a a huge person to your starting pitching. But the Mets have bullpen issues now as well. Seth Lugo and, of course, Diaz, I mentioned, have been terrible since the All-Star break. So do you add to the bullpen? Do you add to the rotation because you need somebody to eat innings? And where do you go from there? One name that's been brought up is former Red Wing Jose Barrios of the Twins. And that would be very costly, but that's a big-time talent. And somebody I think that you go forward and hope to sign, possibly using Marcus Stroman's money after this year to keep him in the current situation. So teams like the Mets with a new owner, big pocketbook with the new owner, looking at a possibility of winning the NL East. And if you get in the tournament, anything can happen. So we'll see where it goes from there. The offense over the last couple of days has finally opened up. It's going to be a, a fun watch to see what they do. I always think this. The Chicago White Sox always seem to make a big trade. And I don't know why I think that, because they haven't been a really good team in a long time. But you look at the White Sox right now, and they have... I I saw a stat that I was like, that's amazing. The White Sox have five starting pitchers. Two of them already have over 100 innings pitched. The other three are over 96 innings pitched. So their next start, all five starting pitchers for the White Sox will likely go over 100 innings pitched. They've got great young talent. They're a a team that's second fiddle to a bad team in a big city, but they always seem to make a play. And, And to me, the interesting part of this is the backdrop of this year, which... We've seen some of it, and I mentioned DeGrom and his injuries, Scherzer early on with his injuries, Clayton Kershaw's on the shelf. Starting pitching, coming off of last year and that shortened season, how much do you push these guys? And what is the risk-reward situation? Because there's going to be a lot of guys who are starting pitchers who are going to break down this year. It's a prospect coming up. They always try to go 10% more next year. So if you throw 50 innings this year, you throw 55 innings next year, and so on, and build up to where you can maybe throw 180 innings 
at the major league level. Or it used to be you'd throw 300, but now it's 180 to 200 is a ton of innings. This year, after a year of last year where there were only 60 games, are there going to be injuries down the stretch? And if you push your pitchers and look at the Chicago White Sox, they're getting a ton from their starting pitching. Is eventually there going to be a wall? Is there going to be injuries? And how do you mitigate that? Do you go get another starter and go with a six-man rotation? Do you add to the bullpen and try and shorten guys? I, I, I don't know how this is going to play out, but then again, neither does anybody else because there's never been this situation. The Nationals are another team to watch. There's some talent there, and obviously there's the Max Scherzer situation. Do they keep him? Do they move him for what I think would be a ton and go forward and rebuild? What other name with the Nationals that could be interesting? I doubt I doubt he plays again this year, but Starlin Castro, who's a hit machine, is on administrative leave following a potential domestic violence situation which Major League Baseball takes very seriously. 80-game suspension is likely what would be coming. But there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about what happened. There isn't even a report of what happened. There's not even an accuser or a situation. Nothing. If anything comes free with Castro, he could be somebody who could be moved probably rather cheaply based on the the potential black eye that you're getting with Castro and in, in his rumored domestic violence situation at this point. Something to keep an eye on there. The Dodgers have a Trevor Bauer problem. Same thing. What's going on with him? When is he able to come back? They also lost Dustin May to Tommy John surgery. They're going to need a starting pitcher. They'll be in play. The Padres are supposedly foaming at the mouth to bring in Joey Gallo which a left-handed bat in between all those right-handed bats, great arm in right field, very good talent, a lot of swing and miss, but that could be something to keep an eye on. I mentioned Brios with the Twins. There's also Nelson Cruz, who's 97 years old and still hits home runs like every other day. It's amazing what he's doing. But Josh Donaldson has a big contract, probably could be had for very little in prospect value if you take on all the money. J.A. Happ. Remember him, Yankee fans? Yeah, he's a guy that somebody might go get as well. The Marlins have Sterling Marte. He'll be somewhere else playing soon. They have a luxury in Marte. They're not going to be a playoff team this year. Go get something for them. Rockies and Trevor Story. And I think, again, go back to the Yankees. This, to me, is a match that has to happen. Go get Trevor Story. Put him as shortstop. Move Glaber Torres back to second base. Strengthen your infield that way. And I think you're in a very good situation. DJ LeMayu at first. Luke Voigt can DH. And who knows? You might have to put Stanton. The way the Yankees are going with outfield injuries, Giancarlo Stanton might have to go to Dick's and buy a glove because he might have to get out there and actually play some left field. It's not looking good for the Yankees outfielders at this point. And then what's always been, and Joe, I'm sorry for this one. It's always been amazing to me that, you know, some stores like Walmart, you go to Walmart, you can buy a car battery, diapers, milk, salad mix. You can buy everything at Walmart. 
The Pittsburgh Pirates every year annually turn into Walmart in July. What do you need? You need a starting pitcher? Oh, we got one. Yeah. go Come get a starting pitcher. You need a second baseman in middle infielder? Frazier's been really good. He was an all-star. And over 300, he's fantastic. Now you need an outfielder. We got you. Brian Reynolds, come get your outfielder. The Pirates are going to rebuild. And, and, and the, the statement rebuild with some organizations is a misnomer, like the Sabres right now. They're in rebuild mode. Of course, they've been in rebuild mode for 10 years. Eventually, when you rebuild, something has to get finished. You don't just keep digging the hole for the foundation. Eventually, you pour some cement. The Pirates, they just keep digging the hole. they got to be down to the Earth's core by this point. I'm sorry that if you're a Pirates fan and you're listening to me getting disgusted, but it's the fact of when do you keep a young player and build around him? And if you don't do that, why are you in the business of baseball? I really don't understand some of these organizations just don't seem to ever try to win. It's it's almost as if they're going along for the ride, take the money from the luxury tax, put it in the owner's pocket, and sell enough tickets to play break-even financially, and you're all good. It's just strange to me. It really is. And I feel bad for the fans. It's, it's like the Orioles. Orioles are another team. They're rebuilding. From what? Eventually, if you're rebuilding, you're going back to something that you had before. And with the Pirates and Orioles, you go back to 79. I, I know they've been good since then. I'm exaggerating slightly. But I just feel bad for the fans of those teams that they have to sit through yet another rebuild when, in fact, it's just a money dump and potentially keeping everything cheap. Tonight is game six of the NBA Finals. The Bucks lead 3-2, to two, and this is one of those series that's turned dramatically. We started the series we didn't know if Giannis was going to play. He has not only played, he has been great. Most of the time, he's been the best player on the floor. But it's interesting if you look at the numbers of the stars. Each team has three premier players. And if you look at the Bucks, Giannis is averaging 32, 13, almost six assists. Fantastic. Chris Middleton's been great. 25 and a half points, six and a half rebounds, five and a half assists. Those are big numbers for Chris Middleton. Drew Holiday defensively has been great, but he's... 17 and a half and nine as well, while rebounding over five a game. So the stars for Milwaukee have done what they're supposed to do. But you look at the stars for the Suns. Devin Booker's averaging 30 a game in the finals. He did have one off game, but he's had 40 plus each of the last two. Chris Paul's been very good 21 and almost nine assists. It's what you'd expect. Young DeAndre Ayton. Over 15 points and 13 boards. If I told you those numbers before the series, you'd stand up and say, yeah, absolutely, I'll take that. The crazy thing to me is, and this is always when you've got a pretty even starting five, and I think they do, it's the X factors. Pat Connaughton has been a huge X factor in this series. Making plays defensively, hitting key shots, 
making the extra pass, all the little things, he's done exceedingly well. Bobby Portis has been an X factor with his toughness. And, and, and that's something that I think the Suns lack. You look at Jay Crowder has tried to give him that, but it hasn't worked. Crowder's somewhat of a finesse offensive player, shooting threes, not taking it to the hole, drawing contact, throwing his body around. It's it's a different style. And I, I think what the Suns need is much more from Mikel Bridges and much more from Cam Johnson. Those two guys have to play big for the Suns to get back into this. And frankly, the best thing in sports is a game seven. So hopefully the Suns win game six, set up game seven, and go forward. My pick at the beginning of the series was Suns and six. I, I think it's going to be Bucks and six. I expect Milwaukee to close it out now. They're going to be at home. They've found the formula. Giannis is healthy. By the way, Giannis is somebody that the NBA needs to market even more. And you look at the NBA, they've always marketed people, not teams. Go back to when Bird and Magic were playing, it was always Larry Bird and the Celtics taking on Magic Johnson and the Lakers. It's always been the player before the team, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. It's always been that way, and it still is. LeBron gets a ton of ink. Zion got a ton of exposure this year. Giannis gets exposure, but until this finals, I haven't heard him speak a whole lot. haven't heard him, seen him on commercials. haven't seen him in a whole lot of different things. But the opportunity he's gotten through these finals to speak and to be somebody that we'd learn from. He had, and he answered the question in his native tongue. He's from Greece, you know, thus the Greek freak. But he was asked about looking ahead and, and looking behind, and he talked about talking about your past is for your ego. Talking about your future is selfish, Stay in the moment and be humble. And, and, and it, I'm very much simplifying what he said. It, but it was a great statement. And it shows that this guy's coming at things from a different level. And I think it's really refreshing. And I think the NBA is missing an opportunity by not using him as a spokesman going forward more. And, and even showcasing. I mean, his skills are ridiculous. Yeah, the guy can't shoot a free throw with under 10 seconds. But, you know, that is what it is. And Chris Paul smacking him for, you know, saying he's good. Everyone knows he's going to miss. Well, you know what, Chris? He's still missing free throws and he's still beating your ass. So maybe you want to get a rebound. Just saying. It's just what Giannis has done, especially coming off that knee injury where we didn't think he was going to play again this year, has been really remarkable. And it's just reinforced that when you look at the best players in the NBA, if he's not at the top of that list right now, he's certainly in the top five and at worst, in my opinion, top three. Just a great player and an intelligent young man who, again, the league 
needs to use more as a spokesperson. I think really it could help them. So that's the NBA update. NFL update. Believe it or not, there are rookies reporting to camp tomorrow. It it seems so strange. The Bills rookies, as a matter of fact, report. The Cowboys and Steelers actually open camp tomorrow. Now, they play in the August 5th Hall of Fame game. So that's one of those they get to go a little bit early. The Buccaneers will go on the 25th because they open the season against the Cowboys. (coughs) Excuse me. So there's that. Every other team opens the 27th, which is crazy to me that we are almost to the point where NFL training camps open. The opening game of the season is on Thursday, September 9th. We're going to have about six weeks of training camp. I know they shortened the preseason to three games, but six weeks of training camp, that is a lot of football. That's a lot of practice. It's a lot of time that the players are going to get their bodies beat up before the season begins. I think one of the other things that should have happened with this adjustment with the schedule is push back to start a training camp. Why are we starting so early? I really don't understand that. There is no need for this long of a training camp. Players are already in shape. It's not like the old days where guys had to work in the offseason, showed up for training camp, and worked themselves into shape through training camp. These guys are in great shape when they show up. And if they're not, they're guys that likely won't make the team. I just find it way too much, and I know the coaches and GMs love this because, again, they control the narrative. Guys aren't going out, getting in trouble. They're in the schedule, the routine, where they can make sure everybody's in bed by a certain time and all these things go on. This is way, way too long. The Bills have announced that they're going to have three open practices to the public. They're going to have a July 31st, August 7th, and September 1st practice. Two of those are on Saturday from 10 to 12. The other is a Wednesday from 12 to 2. Once again, showing that Sean McDermott does not care whatsoever if the fans can come and watch his team practice. He is all business and doesn't change his schedule to fit the narrative of fans going to watch them play. Again, this time of year, they used to come to Fisher. Maybe they'll work something out where they come to Fisher to, for, for training camp going forward. I certainly do not expect that. I've thought that for a couple of years now that the Bills would look to stay in Buffalo where they can use their new facilities that are state-of-the-art without spending money to update somebody else's facilities. I think that this is something that while Sean McDermott continues to say He sees value in the team going away to camp. It's not something that's likely to happen. This is something to me that is going to be the end of an era going forward. Again, the fact that the Bills are practicing next week 
nothing will change. And there's one other piece out there that hasn't happened this offseason yet. And that's Zach Ertz. And, and while the Bills are the team that most people have tied Zach Ertz potentially to, I'm more surprised that the Eagles haven't done something with him and with his salary prior to this point. Now, the risk is you go through camp, and if he gets injured, you lose the potential of trading him and getting some draft capital for him. I don't think that the Eagles plan on going forward this year with Zach Ertz. But for whatever reason, the trade hasn't happened. The Bills, I think, are the the natural fit because A, they're a contender, B, they're in dire need of a tight end. They have been since their existence, and if you don't think that's a true statement, think of who the best tight end in Bills history is. Jay Remusra? Is that is that their best tight end they've ever had? It's been a position that they just have never figured out. And bringing Zach Ertz in for a couple of years, he might immediately become the best tight end in Bills history, and more so by default than by anything he'd do on the field. But it is good to have training camps back open. This is where I always worry about players going out there, and there's always a key injury or two in camp. There's also one other piece of NFL news that needs to be handled rather quickly, and that's the Deshaun Watson situation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when I was ranking the quarterbacks, but here we are a week away from camp. Deshaun Watson... Nobody knows what to expect. Is he going to be a player? Is he going to be somebody who's you can count on week one for the Texans? And I, I just don't think he is. I don't know where they go from here, but I really don't think he's somebody who's going to play, even if all these things get settled. Ezekiel Elliott got a six-game suspension for something that the lead investigator of the NFL didn't find a witness credible whatsoever. I got to think Deshaun Watson gets at least a six-game suspension. Now, the Texans, in fairness, aren't supposed to be a very good team this year anyway, but still, they deserve the right to know if they're going to have a quarterback going forward, and especially when that quarterback is one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL, in my opinion, and I really do think Deshaun Watson is a top-five quarterback in the league. There's been an update on the Aaron Rodgers situation. Adam Schefter, Shefty, tweeted out this morning that the Packers had offered Rodgers a contract extension that would keep him tied to Green Bay for the next five years. It would also make him the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL, meaning the highest-paid player in the NFL. Rodgers turned it down, and Shefty pointed out This shows it's not about the money. So if you're the Packers, what do you do? Do you hope Aaron Rodgers comes in and joins your team and and leads you to the playoffs again? Because Rodgers is probably at worst the second-best quarterback in the league right now. I'd take Mahomes over him, but I would have to think long and hard about that. If you have Aaron Rodgers you have a chance to be competitive. Order the Packers, move Rodgers, and go with Jordan Love and and stockpile a ton of draft capital 
going forward. And, and an acquiring team has to look no further than what Tom Brady did last year for the Buccaneers. Brady goes there, and all of a sudden they win a Super Bowl. Rodgers could be a very similar situation to another team. You know, Think of the Indianapolis Colts, and I know they've got Carson Wentz, but if the Colts have Aaron Rodgers, they might be the best team in the AFC. And, and they might be the most complete team in the AFC. I think Carson Wentz has a chance to rebound, but I don't believe in him to the level I believe in Aaron Rodgers. It's not even close. And that's a very good team. So a lot of things to get settled over the next week or so before training camps begin. This past weekend in the world of golf was the Open Championship. Don't call it the British Open. Golf purists will smack you right upside your head. The Open Championship was won by Colin Morikawa. And this is a kid who... Last year, during the pandemic, when the PGA Championship was moved and was one of the first post-pandemic tournaments played, and Colin Morikawa won a major, kind of burst on the scene with that. And, And he's very young. He's only 24 years old. But he seems very mature and very grounded as he goes through. And Morikawa yesterday went viral for lugging his stuff through the Atlanta airport, including a suitcase on wheels that contained the Claret Jug, which he got for winning the Open Championship, or the British Open, as people like me like to call it. I can never remember seeing Tiger Woods carry his own bags through a golf or through an airport. I don't ever remember seeing Jordan Spieth do that. Rory McIlroy, insert your golfer here. But Colin Morikawa was happy to do that. And if you look at what this guy has done over the last year and a half, and I guess it's not even a year and a half, little over a year, he's won two major championships. He won the PGA last year, and he won the British Open this year. But it's not only that. This year, he tied for 18th at the Masters. Well, it's not a great finish, but... Certainly, it's a good finish. He tied for fourth at the U.S. Open. Tied for eighth in a chance to repeat at the PGA. And he won the British Open. So he has a win in two top tens and a top 20 in the four majors. Colin Morikawa right now is not only the most consistent golfer that we have, he's the best golfer that we have. You know, while Bryson DeChambeau is getting all the press, he's firing his caddy, he's saying his driver sucks, he's throwing out fans who call him Brooksy. Oh, by the way, sidebar, Brooks Kepka plays the you're-an-asshole game better than anybody. Because on, I think it was Thursday of this week, Bryson DeChambeau, the uh, just unbelievably un- self-aware, little spoiled brat, dumbass kid, complaining about his driver and saying that the driver that he's paid probably millions of dollars to endorse sucks and he can't hit it. Of course, didn't 
point out the fact he's trying to do something nobody in golf has ever done, swing that hard and tried to control it. Another dismal finish for Bryson. Brooks Kepka, after a good round the next day, said that he loves his driver and couldn't be happier with his driver. It's just everything Bryson does poorly, Brooks does well. When Bryson fired his caddy the night before a tournament a couple weeks ago, Brooks Kepka put out a picture of he and his caddy hugging after one of his wins and saying, couldn't do it without my guy. It's just... It, it, this If this was a boxing match, they would stop it. They would stop the fight because Brooks Kepka's kicking the crap out of Bryson DeChambeau. And yet, the networks will continue to so- show Bryson because it's more interesting. And the funny thing, like even when he won the U.S. Open last year and they were talking about how long he was, he's playing in the final round with Matthew Wolf. Matthew Wolf was hitting it by him all day. It's just Bryson swings 100% Every time. And I just, I know I'm a hater of Bryson. He's very good, and he doesn't get enough credit for how good his short game is, how good a putter he is, because everyone focuses on the driver. But Bryson's all-around game is great, except for when he opens his mouth. He's just a dick. And I think he's somebody that the PGA Tour has got to figure out a way to get to so that he can become more likable. So when they do sell him as a person throughout golf, fans actually like him. We're finding out. The more exposure he gets, the more we see what he's about. And You know, it's funny because I use Tiger as a comparison with Morikawa. Tiger's golf equipment for the longest time when he was making a lot of money with Nike was incredibly substandard to other equipment he could be using. Yet, you never heard Tiger say a word about it. First off, he still won with it because he was that good. Secondly, he knew where his bread was buttered. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. Bryson doesn't have that down yet. But It's just strange that a guy like Colin Morikawa has won and done what he's done, yet when the PGA playoffs come up over the next couple weeks, we're going to hear much more about Bryson DeChambeau and probably other players as well. And then they'll bring up the Open Championship, Colin Morikawa, and, and point out how good and consistent his play has been. And going forward in the Ryder Cup, can't wait to see what Morikawa does in that setting because he's somebody, I think, his ability to stay in the moment and stay calm and not react emotionally, I, I think he's somebody who will be great in the Ryder Cup. And maybe that's what it takes for fans to see exactly what this kid is doing on tour because I don't think the level of appreciation is nearly as high as where it should be for Colin Morikawa. The last thing I want to get to today is this Friday night is the opening ceremony for the Olympics in Tokyo. Now, this is an Olympiad that's been pushed back a year by the pandemic. It's it's different than every other Olympiad because of the limitations on people being able to go see them. We've already had athletes who've tested positive, who've since been withdrawn from 
their teams in the Olympics. So there's going to be a lot of COVID talk, and there's going to be a lot of things about that. But I've also never felt less energy towards an Olympiad in my entire life. And as an old dude, I've been around a a long time and, and appreciated the Olympics for what they were. I mean, one of my earliest Olympic memories was Bruce Jenner and Sugar Ray Leonard back in 76 and Mark Spitz in 72. I remember that as well. And what I remember about 76 is McDonald's used to give away game cards and there would be an event on the game card. And if the U.S. meddled in that event, you would get either, if it was a gold, I think it was a Big Mac, or if it was a silver, you'd get fries. And if you'd get a soda, if it was a bronze medal. So we used to collect the game cards so you could get free food. And you paid attention. I remember the Dan and Dave marketing campaign before the Olympics. What is this Olympics, as we head into it, what are we, what are we hearing about? Shikari Richardson, the fastest woman who won't be there because of a positive marijuana test, the athletes who have turned their back on the flag. What are we focusing on going in? I mean, Simone Biles' greatness has almost gotten routine. It's almost gotten to the point where we expect it, and it's like, oh, yeah, Simone Biles is going to win again. That's great. Katie Ledecky, her greatness, we've taken it for granted. I don't. I, I'm sure there will be a good story that comes out of this Olympiad, but I've never in my life, and it's been a lot of them, have felt less energy towards an Olympics than this one. And I don't know if it's because of the pandemic pushing it back. I don't know if it's the political climate of our country. Maybe it's a combination of all of these factors. But in television money, NBC spends a ton of money to broadcast these Olympics. Ton of money. And yet, they're not going to get their bang for their buck, in my opinion, this year. I, I just don't know what is going to be the story that comes out of it. Now, it could be next week when I sit down to talk to you all. There is a story, and it is a great story, and it maybe happens. Remember, when the U.S. won the hockey gold medal, the greatest sporting moment of my lifetime in 1980, a couple weeks before that, they played the Russian team at Madison Square Garden and got beat 10-2. to So there wasn't a whole lot of buzz then either. But there became a lot of buzz through the Olympics, and things changed dramatically in those two weeks at Lake Placid. Will that happen again? I doubt it. I I don't think we want to feel good about the Olympics as a country right now. I don't think we want those great stories. We'd much rather bitch and moan about how bad things are. I, I just think that's the way it is. But it'll be interesting to see if something good comes out of the next couple weeks. I certainly hope so. That's all for this week. We'll talk next week. Have a great one. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.